This is episode 18 of the Brilliant Podcast. We live in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, profits and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on our imagination and on our capacity to relate to one another. The Brilliant Podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted but otherwise identical stories of the radical milieu. We believe that a world of free people is possible. We call these people, the people who are in active pursuit of a free world, the brilliant, because they are impossible to ignore and yet cannot be seen directly. We aspire to be brilliant. I'm your host, Aragorn, joined by co-host Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So, I think today we're going to talk about a few things. Um, some of it's going to be a follow-up on, on something we talked about a few weeks ago, and then part of it is going to be a follow-up on Desert, which was mm-hmm. a piece that struck us a great deal, and I think there's more to say about it. But maybe we will start with a, an article that referenced you. No, oh, sure, they. That's yeah. fine. And I think you know, an interesting part of this project, I think, is that we're both still sort of figuring out exactly what we want out of this project. And something that mm-hmm. you had talked to me about before we we began this was that you wanted to be able to put your viewpoint out there because a complaint that people have about you is that you're evasive and mm-hmm. slippery and you don't like mm-hmm. to put your views out there. And I think. This uh, the author of this article is a the article by the way uh, you can find at Black Banner it comes from Black Banner Distro which is out of Vancouver BC uh, BlackBanner.wordpress.com is where the the PDF can be downloaded and it's called yeah what is it called uh, something something nice. resignation oh yeah resignation is death uh, responding to the negation of anarchy uh-huh. and. Yeah, and so I just thought this was completely on that subject because it's a case of someone trying to say there's a position that Aragorn mm-hmm. espouses and I don't like it. And the, the piece is quite long and, and a lot of it is not actually directly relevant to what we want to talk about. And so what I wanted to do was pick out maybe three main points in it and have a little quote on each and we can talk about each of these in turn. And so they were referencing your interview that you did with the journal Hostis, yeah. the, the interview being called Laughing at the Futility of It All, which was part of a quote they pulled out from you. And in that piece, you talked about something that we've talked about in the show, which is that you think one of the meaningful things that anarchists can do now is infrastructural-type projects. And so they, in response to your statement on infrastructure, had this to say, quote, 
Further still, Aragorn goes on to praise anarchist infrastructure as a worthwhile substitute for anarchist interventions and social struggles that might be tainted by the baggage of authoritarian communism that has historically been so strong in North America. Interesting as well that he doesn't write off anarchist action altogether. For him, only the most spectacular forms of sabotage are worthwhile. I ask, though, what is infrastructure or attack if it is not linked in some way to a struggle, a tension, or a trajectory? And they go on to give an example in Montreal, which it seems like is where they're based out of, mm-hmm. just based on how much they talked about it. Actually, I think they said that they traveled there. For- okay, okay, yeah. And they give the example of an anarchist house that is a space that has been claimed for some time by anarchists, but it doesn't really do any sort of project, and it only acts as a safe space, said it by this author in a clearly disappointing way. And um, and they, they basically are making the assertion that uh, has come up somewhat in an email, actually, from a listener, that what is the point of this infrastructure if you're just building it and mm-hmm. it's not actually engaged in attack, engaged in... W- wedging itself into social tensions and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I this is a pretty big rabbit hole that that you're uh, that you're talking about. I I guess I want to slow it down a little bit and say that I am not positing infrastructure versus right. uh, struggle. Mm-hmm. And and the the main reason why I I've, I've sort of come out as as sort of talking about infrastructure as like uh, something worth doing is because in general, uh, I experience people not realizing that, on the on the one hand, there's a lack of sort of manifesto in a lot of a lot of my my projects. On the other hand, you mean the lack of, of sort of the call to arms, right? Uh-huh. Um, but but mostly just that my projects don't have the like we are publishing this so that people can use it as a weapon in the struggle, mm-hmm. or. Um, so you don't have the for each book is produced a broken window happens somewhere right and and so um, uh, and and so in my writing and in my projects um, I, I guess there's on the one hand there's this s- clear sense that people don't realize how much my life is devoted to doing anarchist project work um, and that's because I don't necessarily advertise I am Aragorn and I do one two three four five um, and then and on the other hand. Um, uh, I sort of am more increasingly getting tarred with this sort of association with a futilist uh, perspective, yeah, or futilitarian perspective that I'm that I'm basically advocating that people not do thing the things. But what instead I would I guess posit is that I am in fact doing the things. Like in other words, rather than sort of advocate for other people to do the things that I don't do. Instead, I don't advocate and I instead do the things that I think that people should do. And so what I'm really doing when I'm talking about this anarchist infrastructure conversation is I'm trying to say what I'm attempting to do is build anarchist infrastructure. I'm trying to build a both a conversation space and even some logistical, like in real life spaces where people can have these conversations and talk about these ideas and talk about the, the, the consequences of them. So would you call this, I mean, to me, this person is is making the dichotomy. There is infrastructure, there is sort of build and supply, and then there is attack and destroy. And are you trying to dissolve that dichotomy in the, in the kind of... Is that the direction of the argument? Well, I, I think that if you make it a dichotomy, you strip both sides of a lot of value um, of, of this particular conversation. 
that said, um, uh, you know, for years and years, I've sort of, when people would ask me the question, what are you for? More or less, I would either caveat, caveat away, or I would make the answer so abstract that it, it wasn't necessarily clear. So my more recent experimentation is to say, well, you should do what I do. And, um, and so in that, in that context, in other words, if I'm saying do what I do, then this dichotomy that this person presents doesn't make any sense at all. It falls, it falls right. apart right away. Right. Yeah. But I think that they're thinking that I'm arguing for infrastructure as an abstract position, as an abstraction. And I, I'm absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They highlighted an instance where they were in Montreal and you were in Montreal mm-hmm. and there were a number of riots happening, which I think was possibly related to the student debt yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, and you were uh, apparently being interviewed on the radio talking about how the rioting was being easily controlled by the police. Mm-hmm. And their complaint actually was that, well, of course it was being easily contained by the police because there were so few of us out there mm-hmm. and there were so many police. And so actually what we did for our size was commendable, which to me has a, a funny kind of the, the resonance of, of the ethical claim that says, if only everyone did what I did, then we would be winning. Therefore, what I'm doing is right. And there seems to be, to me, the, a, a hugely avoided issue of, however, I know when I go out there that not everyone is going to do what I do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I need to gauge the effectiveness of what I'm doing with the knowledge that my going out there will not magically bring a hundred people with me. I, th- I mean, I yeah, I guess I've I've really, I think that people think that I came to a, a, a nihilistic perspective, um, uh, by like by alien encounter or something, rather than, um, you know, by years and years of of experiencing what anarchist activity is capable of in, and so. Uh, so for me, I'm deeply interested in questions of strategy and tactics, but I just don't come to the same conclusion that a lot of anarchist rhetoric seems to imply, um, you know, which is that struggle is good, all struggle is good, more struggle is better, and... Um, and that it necessarily has an aggregate effect. Yeah, right, right, sure. And and so, um, you know, like, I, I don't necessarily want to make a, a crit- criticism right now of struggleismo, but I... I, I I just think that there's an enormous area between struggleismo polit- uh, post-insurrectionary politics and futilitarianism. I mean, and 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 the the way in which this constructs that as a dichotomy just strips out the bulk of human experience, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's definitely an effort, um, I'd say, to some extent from this person, but to a much greater extent from others that I've seen to to um, to pathologize the the pessimistic position as just being one of burnout or you're yeah. suffering from depression and that's why you feel this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, there there is a political disagreement here, and I and I I want to honor that because I do think that it's not the dichotomy that's being expressed here, but there are many anarchists who believe that the definition of anarchism is struggle, and. I strongly disagree with that, uh, with that assertion and with that definition. And it is worth digging into what the con- political consequences of, of both that conclusion, you know, that thing is now, but I actually want to do it a different episode. 
Okay. Do, do you want to? Is that an effort to move on, or is that an effort to? Well, I just don't want to dwell okay. on that. But okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there was then a um, an assessment of the futility aspect, which goes like this: "Quote." In my estimation, Aragorn and other North American nihilists focus more on futility and fruitlessness and struggle, not because they are concerned with the recuperation that can come from social struggles, but more because they are seeking affirmation and a larger network of study partners. Aragorn's publishing projects, including Little Black Cart, are exciting at times because of the broader range of thought that they allow, rather than what uh, one might often get out of AK Press or PM Press. Theory, like infrastructure, is highly valuable to a social struggle. The activist martyrs who eschew theory in relation to practice certainly hold a paternalistic viewpoint that suggests we cannot educate ourselves as part of our liberation. But like theory and infrastructure, action and communication are vital to give the former two meaning and ensure that they actually have an effect in the real world. So struggleisti, struggle on, and never forget to think and build as you act so that you do not struggle in vain. And to those throughout North America who are smothered under the weight of the left in identity politics, do not let pretensions of theoretical sophistication civilize or pacify your rebel spirit, nor strangle your abilities to find accomplices in the fight for liberation. End quote. So in this case, I actually appreciate the uh, what they're trying to say in the first half of this, and then I absolutely detest what they're saying in the second half of this. Um, specifically... Um, so I agree with them that, uh, and, you know, we've sort of have had some tension around this ourselves, that for me, uh, my interest in philosophy and in theory is, is in figuring out what to do with them. Mm-hmm. But I don't, but, but again, you know, they, they strip down what you do with things as an anarchist to something called struggle, to something called social struggle, to something called s- struggle in the streets. And Well, specifically, they say theory is... Is strictly of instrumental use. If it right. gets you more struggle points, then it's useful. Otherwise, it's just an empty, empty uh, attempt at intellectual masturbation. I guess. Yeah, and and this is I, I mean I just think that it's it's just uh, it's an absurd assertion, and uh, again, it's not reflected in my reality and in and in whatever my life, and so then how they conclude this this section of their essay. Is, is basically they double down on struggle. And um, uh, and I think that where they really fall apart fr- from their own sort of lens is, is they talk, never forget to think and build as you act. So that, uh, of course, that's a, you know, a fine bumper sticker to sort of say to your, to your efforts. They really need to support this with some, some examples and talk it through because as far as I'm concerned... You know, again, probably given the same facts, we can talk about the Montreal situation or or other situations like it. I come to to very different conclusions given the same data, mm-hmm. and um, and so I I think it's absolutely appropriate to think and build, but but they actually talk shit about infrastructure, which is sort of the code word that I'm using to talk about building something, and and this is because at the end of sort of like a calculation. Um, my my people are self-described anarchists and part of the the coding that's happening around the term struggle is to basically uh remove oneself from being a self-described anarchist in the service of struggle and and for me you mean by attaching oneself to social struggles right right 
And and so th- and so this to me actually speaks to the very different conditions of the Bay Area versus Montreal slash Vancouver. In other words, I, I'm not going to disagree with s- some of the assertions that they make about sort of how much more enlightened a lot of activity is in Canada. I actually kind of agree with them from what I know that in general, you know, Canada is, it has uh, some characteristics that are more informed and That's more interesting. That's interesting. I, I haven't heard about that at all. Um, than Canada does, or sorry, than the U.S. does. But I live in the Bay Area, and and the, the you know, I'm sort of, when I'm describing struggleismo, I'm not describing this person necessarily. I'm describing what I'm seeing in the context of the Bay Area and, and the race away from self-described anarchism and towards something called community organizing right. or community resistance or or, yeah. or the same words that they're using, social struggle. Yeah. And and so this to me is is where, you know, I I think the the friction of what I am trying to talk about is perhaps very different and this person has decided to jump in front of the bullet rather than avoid it. Right. Yeah, the Bay Area eternal deference to the perceived revolutionary subject which yeah. has been renamed leaders of oppressed groups. Right. Yeah. And so the piece rounds it off. I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this by it, it, in a very funny way though. Um they come back to revisit millenarianism and examining the nihilist critique of revolution as an iteration of the millenarian Christian impulse. Mm-hmm. And what they basically say is, uh, and I, I actually couldn't follow the reasoning because they go from, um, from Middle Ages peasants and talk about how they had dreams of revolution, which to me, I mean, the one of the places that I go to that's somewhat close in time is the Anabaptists who absolutely were through and through the perfect example of the millenarian where they literally were trying to manifest the kingdom of heaven on earth, Mm -hmm. did form a revolutionary army and it did not go well for them. And to me, that's the, the example, the prime example of it. But they went from that to then talking about how, but actually the millenarian impulse has cropped up in other places so it's not necessarily Christian. It's just a human desire. Therefore, because it's not Christian, it, it seemed to be implying it's not necessarily a stupid thing to be thinking. <laughs> and then went from that to say the millenarian impulse is happening now and is going to intensify as social conditions get worse. And so what we as anarchists ought to be doing is going out there and harnessing the millenarian mm. impulse because if we don't, the Christian fascists will harness the millenarian impulse and the things are going to be bad, which is exactly like so many arguments that I have heard. It was, I mean, we talked about this in the context of the To Change Everything tour where yeah. similar language was happening, but without the religious resonance about it. But it was just so strange to try to follow their reasoning to, from Christian peasants felt this way, uh, but so did other people. So it's not necessarily Christian. So it's not necessarily mm-hmm. bad. <laughs> yeah, they've definitely lost me there. <laughs> I I'd, I didn't actually read it close enough to to uh, I thought that they were gesturing in that direction for a different purpose, but but uh, yeah. uh, what you're describing is you know I I just disagree strongly. Yeah, I mean it's it's the same sort of hidden premises of the people are necessarily the revolutionary subject, and if they are not tapped appropriately, they will be tapped inappropriately by the people in the bad hats. And yeah. then, I mean, it is worth saying that I am not trying to say that the author of this piece is a Christian. Mm-hmm. My issue is with a Christian impulse that I associate with a millenarian position. 
And so to the extent to which I feel like they might conform to that position, then sure, my, my critique extends to them. But if what they're trying to find is a non-Christian millenarian instinct, you know, I look forward to actually them citing the sources of what that looks like. Um, and I look forward to sort of like playing that out and talking it through. Yeah. But in in the North American context, this is where the, the, the left and the right are actually identical. And in, the, in other words, they are equally Christian. And for reasons that we've, you know, that we could explore a lot, yeah. a lot, but we have explored. Yeah, one of their examples actually was the ghost dance mm. as being <laughs> the instance of a millenarian impulse that was non-Christian. Yeah, that's highly uh, yeah. not appropriate. But, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, but I get what they're saying. Uh-huh. Like, and and I and I actually think that from a from a political position, it makes some sort of sense. Like that one vision that an insurrectionary anarchist may have of them, of oneself is as this sort of sacrificial lamb, um, which of course is me returning to the Christian imagery. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. Enough of this. So. Yeah. So we were talking about Gerald Visner. Well, actually, let's pause and oh, say, pause. I mean, we were talking about Visner in the context of this great essay that's in Black Seed 4, and the, and the only response we've gotten was uh, on Anarchy Radio, uh, we, were, we were informed that Visner is so fucked up. So that made me want to look into Visner more, which I did, and um, and I I actually am am very interested in trying to rope him into a conversation at some point. But that's uh, something far flung and hypothetical at this moment. He is still alive. He is still alive. He's old. Um, he uh, did a number of interviews that I read, and I also had a, a chance to listen to uh, a, a sort of short lecture and poetry reading that he did, and. The poetry reading, um, poetry is not something that I, I normally spend much time thinking about or engaging with, and so I'm, I'm sure my poetry reception palette is an untrained one, but he did spend a, a good deal of time doing something interesting, which was drawing a parallel between the Japanese haiku form and the Anishinaabe, uh, Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe um, dream song. And he he was reading a number of them side by side and talking about how they both um, attempt to break down the representation form in order to allow what he was calling natural reason to be received. And so, in other words, trying to work within the poetry format, but in a way work against it where you try to get past the representation and and approach something like the real image of the person being dissolved into nature. And he was reading these side by side, and it was it was interesting to see how two very different cultures in and this was his point in you know almost total or total isolation from one another developed a very similar poetic form, and um, so that was interesting in itself. And then I read a number of interviews with him where he made the very interesting assertion that that native storytellers were the first postmodernists and the interviewer followed up with it and he was saying I think this is something that is difficult for people to 
understand me as coming from because, of course, we're talking about being postmodern without having the modernist stage. And so you had people who were never went through that whole European development, uh, cultural development and, and uh, philosophical development, and never had that reaction against it, but rather had something that looked a lot like the reaction against modernism without ever having gone through it. And he drew on uh, Leotard's postmodern condition as his, as his uh, sort of definition from which to wander from, and he said this. And I'm, I'm going to read a somewhat long quote, and that actually, uh, I'm, I'm skipping parts of it. The conditions are that, first, no story is the same. The conditions are postmodern because of their connection to oral expression, which is usually a kind of free-floating signifier or collection of signifiers, depending on who is present. The meaning of such stories that are orally presented depends on a number of interesting, lively, immediate, temporal, and dangerous, dangerous natural conditions. And he drew this comparison between hunting and telling stories. To hunt, to tell stories, is dangerous. It's also survivance, which is a, a neologism of his. That is a conditional experience rather than a mere response to domination or victimization. Survivance is not just carrying this burden and surviving, but also inventing a worldview. It's an attitude of play, play in a very serious sense. Survivance is the end of domination in literature. It's also a new kind of existentialism, a source of identity, not the French atheistic existentialism, but tribal existentialism or spiritual existentialism. The discovery of oneself through action, through being present. The advantages to survivance are that it provides a way to accept this condition, reverse what's been imposed upon us, and play with that. Philosophically, I think we should break out of all the routes, all the boxes, break down the sides. A comic spirit demands that we break from formula, break out of program. I suppose I am preoccupied with this theme because the characters I admire in my own imagination and the characters I would like to make myself be break out of things. They break out of all restrictions. They even break out of their blood. They break out of invented cultures and repression. I think it's a spiritual quest in a way. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, what's uh, so we, we have a close friend who's going to university at the UC Berkeley, and uh, they appear to be sort of pursuing Visner as their object of study. But, um, but you know, for me as a as a uh, as a half breed native person, this stuff is just fantastic because basically the way in which I totally wear what it is that Visner's talking about is. Um, uh, for people who know me personally, they know that I, I, I come off as very fairly abusive in terms of um, uh, taking very small bits of evidence and, and sort of converting it into large uh, condemnations of... Sure, yeah, constructing people into archetypes that you don't like based on very limited interactions. Ex exactly. <laughs> which, which, you know, I absolutely intend as a form of play, but, but it's serious play because, because it's a way to sort of get at big topics... With and 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 to force people to to get at those big topics in their body rather than just with their with their mind, and um, uh, anyways, I I bring it up because uh, it, it's it absolutely comes from sitting around the kitchen table, which I I I return to this metaphor a lot, but it's not a metaphor. I, 
uh, I absolutely recall my kitchen table uh, childhood as being one of learning how to insult and 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 uh, not just imply insult, but you know, insult other members of my family. And I was unusual for a boy in that I I spent more time at the table than I spent sort of um, out in the barn and out out in the on the on the rolling hills of the countryside and um which is te- which is where the guys tended to go in the in in my family so it it it's, it totally resonates and uh, we'll actually copy and paste that quote into the tiktok of this episode just because it's probably yeah. richer than just listening to it uh, sounds yeah yeah and also um we'll include some links to there are a few interviews with him i was able to find that were um, some of them were, you know, in these academic journals where they want you to pay for it, but some of them were, f- were freely available. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was amazing as a way. So one of his big projects, of course, is what he calls this post-Indian perspective, which is to say, to indict the Indian identity as a, as a constructed identity, one of colonization, exoticization, and say, um, another a bit that I found him say was that there is no word for Indian in any of the tribal languages and therefore he rejects that entire label and says that it the the meaningful identity is the individual tribal identity which is a complicated topic and there you know there's yeah, all kinds of ways that you can He's playing a little bit of a game there but right yeah, yeah. and uh, I think I'm guessing from the way he talks about identity that he would be resistant to being hardened into any of those identities as well but I love this idea of saying I'm there's a narrative that we've been told many many times that we're the victim and we're the defeated culture and maybe we were this beautiful exotic thing at one point but now that's gone and say actually I'm going to tell stories in a way that reconstructs who I am and one of the reasons that um especially for a while in Free Radical Radio, I was just obsessed with talking about reification all the time, was that I I found this incredibly rich idea that civilization is reproducing itself not just through our material activity, not just by going to work and, and buying shit every day and building shit, but also through the conversations that we have, that we're reproducing it through having these banal conversations that reinforce social identities, that reinforce our helplessness, and this, as he's saying it, I mean, he's calling it a spiritual quest, which, you know, I can't do that because I'm this hollowed out human being with a Western perspective. But I love the idea of I, I'm going to reconstruct myself by telling very different kinds of stories, ones that feel like they have no rules, maybe. When I was reading his, uh, was it Skyline? The, the one that's in Black Seed, I can't remember the... Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when I was reading that story, I thought, oh, wow, this is a story that just feels like it has no rules. I don't know what's going to happen. There's not a consistent subject. There's very much the breakdown mm-hmm. of the consistent subject, the shifting of perspective. And, yeah, I mean, you know, he's calling that postmodern storytelling. He's calling that native storytelling. And I guess, for me, the, one of the questions that comes up from this is that the postmodern perspective is so often tarred as being capitulatory mm. because it's afraid to make assertions it's it's suspicious of evidence it's yeah. allergic to a, a meta narrative an overall story so how do you reconcile what he what or how do you reconcile that tarring or that that indictment 
with the fact that he's saying, for me, this is a liberatory act. Well, let me play with that a little bit, because I, I'm, I'm having a lot of uh, feelings right now. So uh, there's a term he uses there that I think is, re- is appropriate, and, and perhaps uh, it's appropriate more because we're talking about how do we, how do we take theory and make it actionable. So, um, just to be clear, in in one of the discussions I heard him say, this is he sees his writing as a political act. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, he uses this term called survivance, right. uh, which I would probably use the term self defense. And so I'm comfortable with using the term self self defense because of the context that I have drawn from self defense, which has mostly been from martial arts. Right. So the first martial arts that I ever learned explicitly called itself self defense, um, but it basically was uh, very little self defense and mostly about how to beat someone up. Um, <laughs> uh, but but it very much wrapped itself around that around that discourse. But I still think that that this question of self defense is an incredibly important one for anarchism, and I would call a self defense conversation being very distinct from one about safe spaces, right. or one about um, or, or basically about the the sort of shaming that's happening yeah. now in the, in the context of of identity politics, because I think that self defense uh, does look like physically confronting people physically touching people hostily and um uh and so i've i've very much been an advocate for what sort of seems to be like a new thing in in anarchist circles or at least here in the bay which is actual physical violence towards interpersonal physical violence yeah um but not but now um you know we'll be vague about this but but we had this situation where i feel like we have a self-defense conversation to have in other words, it's gone too far, or or different people are taking it to mean something very different. Sure. Um, and you know, and I don't, I don't love the idea of a of a an anarchist space where big guys basically beat up on little people, and um, and so I, so to me, this is a really active conversation of like, how do we tell stories about like how are our stories going to empower us to be more thoughtful and capable and from a self-defense perspective against bullying behavior and um and i guess the first the first step is just to name it and and then the second step is to basically you know sort of again have a conversation about who is your tribe who are the people that uh that you share enough with or enough dunbar yeah, well, isn't that, isn't that number hundreds? Because because I I I think that's well, I think that's ridiculous. But yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I I mean I I. Well, okay. So for me, part of what was interesting about this is so when Visner talks about survivance, he's contrasting that with mere survival mm-hmm. and saying it's not enough to me to say we linger on as this largely genocided people that is still alive and sees itself as having been victimized. What I want is not just to survive, but to survive and construct a new perspective that mm-hmm. says I'm not a victim. And I, I think what I'm trying to get at with this, this contrasting it with the indictment of postmodernism as capitulatory is to say, it's interesting that what Visner's 
construction of a new viewpoint looks like to me, at least from what I've read of him and what I've seen in these interviews, is actually is largely a destructive project, as in destru- destroying the old perspective. Hmm. And he's not necessarily putting forth an obvious new one. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe he sees himself as making the space for a new one. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I guess similar to it, indictments that are made of me. Uh, you know, it's not Visner's role right. to communicate a new perspective to people who are not sharing that perspective with him. Instead, it's to sort of leave that space open and perhaps, uh, you know, leave that to the reader mm-hmm. um, as a homework assignment. Yeah, <laughs> and and maybe just having to do with the particularity of your condition rather than. I mean, this might be another way in which he's Pomo. Is he's not right. going to construct a new native meta narrative? Yeah. No, for sure. And, and you know, the, the primary criticism to make of that attitude, and, and definitely one that I, that I feel, is that as the years tick by, I see the opportunity for finding and building the, those new, a new circle to be ext- exceedingly difficult. Um, yeah, anyways, that's a positive note to and talk on this So Aragorn is signaling to me that he's ready to move on by scrolling down on the, the monitor to, to reveal new notes. And so I think we are going to talk about desert now. Desert really, having had a little bit of space to to consider it more since the last time we talked about it, which was a few weeks ago, it really does one of my favorite things, which is using the rational, the scientific mode of thinking to invert the rational scientific mode of thinking or show its weaknesses where you, you marshal all this data, you marshal these empirical predictions, and say we're used to being able to marshal these empirical predictions and feel like we know what's going to happen. But in this case, we're marshalling these empirical predictions to say something strange and weird and new is going to happen and we don't know what it's going to look like. And I I like using these familiar techniques that let us feel like we know what's going on to show that we don't know what's going on. And so having had a little space to reflect on it, that's, I think, the the nicest thing about it for me. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, mostly what we're going to do today is we're going to pivot the conversation away from desert and towards a piece that more or less is a uh, a reflection on desert. In other words, it's kind of like of like a book review. It's kind of like an essay, but um, and very much not really in the same line as what you just described about desert. But this is Alejandro de Acosta's piece, Green Nihilism or Cosmic Pessimism. Mm-hmm. Which is not just about desert, it's also about Thacker, etc. Yes, it's also, so what it basically does is read those two alongside one another and sort of puts them in this 
reciprocal interaction with each other to show how each one sheds a different light on the other. And it was Eugene Thacker's piece, um, or his book, actually, In the Dust of This Planet. Right. Yeah. Which, for who people don't, who don't know, uh, while this is not anarchist material and Thacker is not, not necessarily in our orbit... Uh, for people who are theory heads, Thacker is extremely popular right now, and this piece in particular has broken through to pop culture because uh, the title in the dust of this planet <laughs> yeah. was worn by Jay-Z on the back of a jacket uh, yeah. in a tour. Um, and so uh, so that sort of has popped the whole concept in his book in particular into the into a into popular culture. There's even an entire episode of like some NPR show. Uh, yeah, about yeah. about Thacker and about this uh, thing. So, yeah, and it's it's actually quite funny because he, in that book, does use popular culture as a way to to look at at uh, this this sort of strange philosophical concept. So it, it ended up playing this funny game with itself. But um, yeah, I'm I'm very happy with the Alejandro piece. I'm happy with the title. Um, I f- for years, starting when I was sixteen or so, described my outlook on the world as cosmic horror which was probably a result of reading a lot of Lovecraft and feeling like humans weren't really capable of understanding the world but Alejandra starts the piece off with actually an indictment of the anarchist milieu that I thought was interesting I'm going to read it here in the background of both exchanges is a kind of obtuseness characteristic of the anarchist milieu our propensity to be as ready to pick up the new thing as to dismiss it, either immediately after consumption or soon after another consumes it. This customary speed, which we share with many with whom we share little else, is what necessitates the yes or no operation. Whatever the response is, it has to happen quickly. To do something else than mechanically phagocyte desert or anything else worth reading and absorb it or excrete it uh, back out onto the bookshelf, literature table, or ship pile, some of us will need to take up a far less practical, far less pragmatic attitude toward the best of what circulates in our little space of reading. So I'm very happy with that quote, even though he, the phagocyte is one of my favorite words, but he actually should have said phagocytos. That's the <laughs> verb form, but um, I love that, and I love that as as an analysis of desert, and of course he's talking about the way that desert was received, which in many cases, according to Alejandro, was to either say, yes, it's right, or no, I hate it. It's depressing. And I have found that, unfortunately, among anarchists, the usual response to reading is to immediately be pro or con. Mm-hmm. And if it's con, that there's probably not anything worthwhile. And it's amazing to me to see that, that really disappointing tendency in them and uh, to somehow preclude the possibility that something you disagree with might still be interesting, might still be uh, give you a lot to pull um, out of it, and not just uh, not just reading it as well. Now I know more about the counter arguments to my position, but to actually say oh, I, I disagree with something in an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, this has been at the very heart of the Art and Press project is to basically publish. Uh, uh, provocative books okay. that we disagree with, oh, and I, that yeah, somewhere in that disagreement is a circumference where we are. Mm. And so, obviously, nihilist communism. I absolutely disagree with the conclusions of nihilist communism. I couldn't disagree more. Uh-huh. But 
the way I disagree is so much more interesting than a lot of things I agree with. Yeah. Uh, this this actually I was going to bring up this uh, joke, uh, which is sort of a classic anarchist joke that you probably that you may not have heard before, but um, uh, it, it's totally relevant to the to the nihilist. Uh, sorry, to the to the critique that we talked about earlier. But okay. It's also uh, relevant to Alejandro here. Two Greek anarchists are sitting together making Molotov cocktails. One says, So, what are we going to throw these at? The other replies, What are you, a fucking intellectual? <laughs> That's pretty good. I have not heard that joke. Um, yeah, so you can yeah. see how it's relevant. In- <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think um, just to... to Kind of briefly summarize. Actually, this this piece is available online. I, yeah, I think, for sure. Yeah. It's on, on the yeah, so if library. anyone if anyone is anyone's interest is piqued, it's readily available for you. But it's also in the book The Impossible Patience, published by Arden Press. Right. And so, just to to briefly summarize the book enough that we can talk about it, what happens is Thacker is talking about um, the sort of limits of human thought or the limits of human perception, and saying that um, we. We can think of the world as the human world, the earth, we, or the world, he calls it, or we can think of the world as the subject of the natural sciences, which is you know, this biochemical, geological thing that we can think of as the earth, and then we can think of the world that exists at the limits of our perception, and the world that exists without us, and he calls that the planet. And what he is suggesting is that the world is becoming increasingly incomprehensible as we meet with these calamities and we're starting to be able to conceive of a, or get the sort of glimpse of a world without us and that it it's a kind of it entails this new unfamiliarity with the planet that it becomes a fundamentally weird world mm-hmm. and so what then Alejandro takes up and I think what we can take up is how do we approach a fundamentally weird world, and what are the consequences of that perspective? And I think there are a few. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so one was um, something that Alejandro touched on that I think piqued my interest because it was it was very similar to some of the conclusions that I made in the piece that I wrote for Black Seed, um, which was that indictment of uh, anarcho-primitivism. And... So, Alejandro's talking about Venegam and his contrast between survival and life. And he says, for him, it was a matter of inverting the accepted and to a large extent enforced view in which one must survive first and live second. Some of this view seems to have been taken into the perspective that identifies life and nature, where the latter is understood as what we are or should be. That is, that there is something normative about life or nature that we can refer to. The perspective I am developing here suggests that we have no way of knowing what we are or should be, and that the wild is better conceived as that no way, as the conditions that push back against our best effort to define ourselves, identify ourselves, or know our world. Similarly, what is wild in us can only be conceived, though it is not really conceivable in the long run, as what resists, what pushes back against any established order. But this might be closer to survival than to life. And I love that. And I love that rejection of life and nature as something that could ever be normative. And I think 
that's something I developed ad nauseum in the piece that I wrote. But um, and I, you know, I talked about it in various ways on this show as showing that you know, the biological does not necessarily produce something consistent or something teleological, and that that's actually a, an archaic and I think religiously informed perspective. And I know a lot of green anarchists hate this, and they want to see themselves as someone who can align themselves with the natural forces. And I think the easy indictment of the perspective that I'm articulating here and that Alejandro's articulating is that this is some sort of admittance of a fundamental alienation of the Mm. human being from the rest of the world. But I see it as one of the only ways that I can conceive of adopting a non-anthropocentric perspective as to say, I refuse to continue to personify the non-human. I refuse to see it as something that's goal-oriented and strives toward the good. And if I accept myself as an organism and not as a, a, a greater than creature that the humanist perspective wants me to, then I accept that I have these hard limitations on what I can perceive, and I don't know what the real is, and I don't know what the, uh, the, uh, the inner workings or fundamental nature of the world around me, and I am going to approach it ultimately as something that is weird and unknowable. Yeah, I, I guess the first thing I'll say is, you know, I, I love Alejandro as a, as a writer, and one of the things that he accomplishes that is extremely difficult is he is someone who is very, um, uh, who is learned in a discipline, in an academic discipline. And, and I would say this thing about uh, grad students, that uh, generally as many years as you've spent in higher education, it takes that many years after you leave the academy before you can write like a human being. Yeah. And and I think Alejandro has entered that phase of his life. That he's been he's away. He's returned f- to the human. He's returned. He's returned to the to the right to, to being capable of writing. Obviously, having this incredible, you know, he's a PhD in philosophy. Okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, and he no longer uses jargon. Like you're attempting to talk about very similar things, but you're still. I'm jargoneering. You're yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though I, I, I you're trying, I'm not grad educated. Yeah, but you obviously took your academic experience more seriously than most people do. I don't know. I don't know about that. Maybe I'm just broken. I don't know how to fucking talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, to to get to, uh, I I actually oddly listened. You know, I, because we're doing this audio project, I'm I'm paying more attention to other audio types of audio projects. Yeah. And I there's a a project on YouTube called Free Radical Media. Oh shit! That I feel so of... encroached upon. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so what's interesting about it's definitely like dudes talking to dudes about dude stuff, and uh, uh, so the the episode I listened to was him talking to a dude about science, and the dude <laughs> is it, uh, the second dude. Yeah, um, you have to start using some pronouns here or something. <laughs> um, uh, the second dude did, did some sort of video documentary that I only I have de- definitely not watched and and I w- will not watch because it l- sounds incredibly boring. But um, uh, so the thing he created is called Engines of Domination. I think it's a book and a video. Okay. Um, but very much in the YouTube world, so it it's sort of definitely uh, is associated with anarchism. It calls itself anarchist, but it really doesn't come from. Like, okay. It doesn't come from uh, 
Kropotkin Bakunin, or or it's not anarcho-capitalist as far as I can tell. They even they spoke against capitalism in the, in the thing. It's some sort of internet phenomenon. So I, I don't know enough to to, to judge it harshly. Is this like a like a zeitgeist movement kind of. People, it feels or? like it might whiff in that in that direction. But they talked. So, anyways, the reason I bring it up is because um, they they were talking about these same subjects, uh, and now I've sort of lost my <laughs> my thread. But uh, maybe maybe it'll come back. Um, okay. So why don't you continue? Sure. So another consequence that I was thinking about you know, how do you approach the fundamentally weird world so Alejandro drew on Thacker and Thacker noted this parallelism that I think is awesome between politics and theology and so he, Thacker was talking about how in the 17th and 18th century Europe the idea of God was a transcendent God it was a God above you <laughs> and the politics at that time were kings, were kings. Yeah. sovereign ruler Monarch, some kind of distant singular figure, yeah. and then in the 19th century, um, we you know you had the Reformation and everything, and so now it's God is imminent, God is everywhere. You have personal relationship with God, and then that corresponded with the emergence of democracy as a political movement. So the politics are everywhere; everyone's part of the politics, and so you have this relationship between the metaphysical outlook and the political outlook, and so then I was drawing from that, okay, well, so does the anarchist politics of a world that that says no to the desert conclusion and says, no, the world can be saved, the world can be fixed, the world can be managed, do we have to, does that go along necessarily with a metaphysic that says the world is knowable, the world is for us, the world is alterable, we can manage the world? And so what desert says, of course, is no, the world is is, is not necessarily for humans right. and we're dislodged from this and so then I see a relationship between that and then the politics that flow from that that say we're not actors on the stage we're part of the setting and ultimately we're part of this sort of morass of things that are unmanageable and unknowable and even if they can be acted on maybe in small ways and so that is this I guess I'm saying this political disagreement necessarily a metaphysical disagreement. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it probably is. Yeah. yeah, I would. Yeah, and is this disheartening, or is the, is the desert conclusion upsetting to people because they haven't shifted their metaphysical perspective? And I think of hmm. of um, when Peter Lamborn Wilson's The New Nihilism got posted on A News, and Emil um, had that really interesting response that was saying like, look. It's only upsetting if you think of yourself as the actor on the stage of history and if you just see yourself as part of everything. And so it's not a question of, oh, can I change things? Oh, shit, I failed. I didn't change things. This sucks. But if you view yourself as having instead this relational relationship with, or this, this uh, as existing as a set of relations with the world, then you're changing things all the time and it's not necessarily something to get upset about. Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. Great reading of Peter's piece also. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's enough for, for okay. this episode. Sure. Um, I mean, did you want to go on? Uh, the last thing was that was um, Alejandro had a, a way of talking about the milieu that I thought was quite amazing. Um, so, yeah, so he's talking again about uh, uh, Venegam's inversion, 
and saying that you know maybe we can't live up to that great situation's call to action. And um, he says, whatever its faults, Desert was written to say that such a conception is no longer useful, and that one useful meaning of anarchist is someone who admits as much, which is quite an assertion. Can that meaning fit with the subcultures that most of today's anarchists compose? Probably not. The subcultures exist as pockets of resistance, of course, but survival in them is indelibly tied to reproducing the anarchist as persona, as identity, as an answer to the question of what life is or is for. To make sense or have meaning, this answer presupposes the workings of our homegrown identity machine, our collective, repeated, minimal task of discerning about actions whether they are anarchist or not, and by extension, whether the person carrying them out is anarchist. It is our way of bringing the community into the desert. And where my mind went with this was actually, um, I know you don't like it, but Rick Roderick, when he gives all the, those readings of Nietzsche, and he's talking about the consequences of Nietzsche's death of God, and he's saying, for the first time in Europe, you had this loss of identity, and the identity as being part of the kingdom of God. And instead of looking at another person saying, this is my Christian brother or sister, instead, the question of identity with the industrial revolution coming on and the, the sort of life as job, then it came to the question of identity was, oh, what do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. And that was a, a sea change. And I was thinking of Alejandro calling the subculture a, an, a homegrown identity machine that this is a, our way of people who don't like jobs and people who don't like to conceive of themselves as that way of saying, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm an anarchist and I am for changing the world. That is what it means. That is what my life is for. Mm-hmm.